This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Oakshade Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man, your host, Welcome to season five. Here we go. This podcast is brought to you by discipline, delayed gratification, and being accountable to yourself. This podcast is about finding the high road, working hard every day, creating the best possible version of yourself. Our values are faith, family, fitness, finances, elk hunting, and career. Our guiding principles are authenticity, transparency, and out hustling the competition. Our podcast is brought to you by Buck Knives, Onyx Hunt, Vortex Optics, Wilderness Athlete, Black Rifle Coffee Company, Crispy USA, Matthews Archery, Kufaru International, and BlackOvis.com. He's 44. He lives in California. He's an artist and a world-class bow hunter, and I am honored. It is a privilege to have him on today. Him and I have not met in person yet, but we will, and we uh, get to have a nice deep dive into his philosophy on bow hunting. Check it out. Hey, Dan. Good morning. Marlon, gray light hunter, what is good? Brother, how are you, man? Good. It's Friday. Uh, we're having unseasonably warm weather. I can't complain. How about you, man? Oh, interesting. Yeah, we, we've been kind of the same way, um, but then... It's kind of strange. There's a little bit of a cold snap coming through right now, but what I consider cold snap is not not cold for you guys. It's just rain um, and dipping into the 60s, which is a little bit odd for this time of the year because it's usually 100, 90 to 100. Good Lord. So it's kind of a little bit interesting in the desert right now, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're just kind of making the best of it. We lost about 70% of our deer herd over the last two years. So it, it's, um, it's like kind of crushed, crushed the hunting out here. It's been pretty rough, but, uh, I, uh, decided to go get, uh, 
there's this juice place it's called nectar you ever had that no but i'm interested it's uh like um it's like uh fruit and vegetable type based bowls no no sugars no uh just all natural type stuff and then uh pressed juices turmeric shots ginger shots stuff like that it's just kind of like holistic natural foods um i'm kind of like into that stuff so helps me stay on track not be too much of a fat fat human being <laughs> yeah man i i gotta tell you like I went to your website for the first time last night, super impressed. And you talk about you losing 70% of your deer herd. I was like, I highlighted something to read to you and to the audience. And it kind of, kind of lines out. Um, you wrote the most important aspect of this pursuit that we take to the mountains every fall must be done with the responsibility of the future of these great creatures on our shoulders. It is our burden to educate, love, and revere them into the future and not out of existence. The pursuit is about a journey through time, and might they take part of us as much as we take part of them. That was beautifully wrote and very applicable to your deer herd where you live. Um, what is the future? How... How can that be sustainable? How do you get these deer back to decent numbers? You know, I think that uh, that ultimately, Dan, what it, what it comes down to is each individual person has to take it upon themselves to, they owe themselves to manage themselves. And I cannot ever dictate whatever species you have a tag for, whether you should or shouldn't, because your experience of field simply should be one by which caters to the type of a hunt and the type of experience that you want. I would never want to take that away from someone. However, um, being that I think that a lot of people are kind of attempting to social proof themselves, it's important to make sure that you make the journey about yourself. I think that it's prudent and that it is, um, I, I guess, almost coming from a higher place within yourself that says, I don't need to prove myself to anyone. I need to make this hunt about, about you know, my journey and uh, the adventure and, you know, how it makes me feel just to be in the mountains. Let the deer or the elk or the bear or the ram or what, whatever it is that you're pursuing be, uh, you know, kind of like the bonus. And. I think it's easier for maybe you and I to say that simply because, you know, I mean, I don't know many more people in the world that have killed more bull elk than you, right? You have them hanging in your rafters all over the place. Like, seems like you get three to five of them a year on automatic, like no matter what. And, you know, same for me with deer. So it's kind of like coming from a place where if you've arrowed a bunch of elk, arrowed a bunch of deer it, it seems like okay well that makes sense for you but i'm still you know for the, those out there listening that maybe have only arrowed one or still working on their first one or looking to you for all the motivation because of you know everything that you do for uh hunting in general and and i think to those individuals you know definitely make it about your journey and your process but in all reality um unless they're you know, kind of too, too old to breed. We need to kind of like let them rebuild. Uh, they have enough on their shoulders right now with predation and whatnot. 
what I've done is I've kind of gone to different areas where the herd hasn't been quite as impacted and started hunting those areas. And I haven't, uh, I've decided to like not hunt areas that they got significantly um, impacted by the drought. I mean, I'm walking up on lots of, California has a really bad lion problem. Um, they don't manage them here. And forgive me for a second, uh, out. So if I lose service to an extent um, or it gets a little patchy for just a moment, bear with me. Um, but because of the predation and because of the drought, it's been such a significant issue that, you know, we kind of have to personally manage it a little bit better and and self-police if that makes sense i, I think sure. that's the best way to try and explain it and go about it but you know it's kind of a, a tiered answer because it's really hard to tell somebody else what to do with their hunt right yeah the fact that you've mule deer hunted so hard so many places so many states not guided just all self-guided just kind of all do it yourself style a guy when it comes to the training when it comes to working on your own equipment your entrepreneurship. There's so many places I would love to talk about, but I know we're limited on time. So I'm going to go right to the stuff I dig, which is what do you do for a living? How are you able to hunt so much? People are jealous of that. And I preach that you got to make your own way and chase time. What are you doing to be a time chaser? How do you get money to chase you? How do you free up your schedule to hunt so much? So I've always been in sales my entire life. It started out uh, in the mortgage industry and I spent a lot of time, you know, just trying to understand how to sales is not about selling people. It's about having a product you believe in and helping someone. So if you have a service or a good that ultimately can uh, have enough benefit for somebody's life that truly you believe in it, you're, you're not really selling anything at all. Um, and so I got really good at that probably in my early twenties, like 21, 22, I jumped in mortgage and started saving people a ton of money. So I learned really quick what it was to just create value for people and help people. Once you start creating value for people and helping people, and and I mean, truly helping people, not just trying to sell people a bar of soap, like when you start helping people. Uh, it kind of comes back to you double fold. And I learned in that same vein, servant leadership. So really, once I became good at sales, I became leading team, I, I became somebody that, you know, the company would look at and say, wow, well, can you help us teach others? And uh, for a while, I started thinking, okay, well, I'm good at sales. So I need to start, you know, telling people what to do. And it took me probably a couple of years to figure out, well, leadership isn't about me leading it's about me showing people um and so the whole term and idea of servant leadership came into play and i became really good at not only teaching people but teaching people by example and from there um it gave me a lot more freedom and flexibility in my life to do the things that i wanted because obviously the money was there to do it um the segue i think came when you realize that you're working for a company that uh, each sales month, you're no better than your last month. It's almost like in anything you do, you have to continue to progress. And I realized that it was kind of like a, 
a revolving door and it was very much so uh, perpetual. Like there was nothing that ever had an end game in sight. And that's where I wanted to live with more purpose. I wanted to be uh, honest within myself, to be honest to my life force that I just wanted to make sure that I did everything that I could to um, live with passion, live with a desire every day to know that I was doing something that truly fueled me and allowed me to have a direction that I wouldn't look back on when I was 80 years old and say, gosh, I wish I would have done a number of different things that I hadn't done out of fear or out of uh, thinking that I had too many responsibilities to pursue my dream. So you would never imagine uh, how many people kind of laughed when I said, hey, I'm going to take uh, photos of landscapes. Uh, I'm going to make an edition of 100 of these in four different sizes, and I'm going to sell them from seven to $20,000 a piece. You pretty much get laughed off the uh, laughed off the field really fast, and so mm -hmm. that's where you have to have belief in self. That's where you just have to sit there and say the noise is nothing but noise. And because these people don't believe they can do it, that you know is somewhere where you have to just look in the mirror and and say, do you believe in yourself enough? Do you believe in your ability enough, your skill set? And what you've learned in not only sales and providing value to people, but in your leadership abilities and your own confidence to be able to go out and do something that somebody else says isn't possible or a vast majority says isn't possible. And then you just simply set your mind to it. And I see the same thing in hunting. So to answer your question, um, I'm a salesperson, but I've elevated myself to being a business owner. Um who sells landscape photography out of a gallery in Laguna Beach. And we use a conduit of a nationwide and worldwide. We use interior designers through Lux Group. And we serve probably 38 different countries right now. We do high-end builds anywhere from $5 million to $20 million that uh, put exclusive artworks in, in really beautiful homes all around the world. And those interior designers place the work. So. Uh, in building an entrepreneurship, not only do you think of, okay, what can I sell? But then you start branching out the arms of that, like an octopus. You have different channels, whether it's retail direct to consumer, whether it's through your uh, contractors or your designers. And then you just kind of build build from there. And so that's what you know I've been doing. I've been scaling business. Um, it creates financial freedom to a degree where I'm not really worried about um, you know, money, so to speak, I'm always worried about money, but it, it's not like, where is my next uh, check going to come from that? That's not so much a part of the equation as how am I going to build the legacy of true freedom for my family? And I think that that's more of what I build on now is just trying to figure out what it looks like to build the future. Dan. Wow. That's a whole podcast we could do breaking that down. The thing that impressed me the most was your ability to create some, obviously, like you said, the arms of an octopus, the revenue streams, but the networking to getting those interior designers to place and then making your prints very <clears throat> limited or exclusivity. That's a whole podcast I'd love to do, but not today, dude. I got to ask you, what are you currently right now? What do you shoot on? What is your go-to camera? Use a Nikon D850. I keep it real simple. It's not about the uh, capture technology so much as it's about your understanding of 
focal length, optimum depth of field for your particular lens, um, the clarity and quality of that lens, shooting low ISO, so that way you have good results with large prints. There's a lot of things in technique and your post-processing that will allow you to garner a finished product that far supersedes your capture technology. Uh, you could use a phase one IQ 150 and think that you're technically as sound as can be, but really at the end of the day, um, it's nothing if you really aren't using the optimal uh, depth of field or the proper lens for the, for the job, right? It's just like anything else. It's just like picking arrows or broadheads or bow or boots. Um, after you've been in the game for a while, and if you're truly a studious towards your craft, you'll really hone in on things and you go straight to them and you don't even think about it, right? Certainly. Um, when did you realize that you kind of had a gift or at some point you had to realize, okay, I'm pretty good at composition, lighting, framing. Some of these things are super dope. Like when did, when did you kind of realize I, I could make a go at this or I'm really passionate about these landscape photography, still photos. Here's the funny part. This is the funny part. And I think everything that we're talking about bridges so heavily over into hunting and, and I'll, and I'll delineate why, but what it really comes down to is more of an ability to understand people and connection to people and how to sell and having confidence and understanding how to sell. Because if you have a superior product, you can go out there with anything you do um, and you can survey your marketplace. You can take a look at what exists in your marketplace as far as a, comp a competitive state. And you can build an awareness uh, to where you understand who your major competitors are. And you can say, okay, is my work, and be honest with yourself, is, is my work as good? Is it better? Is it a, a cut above? How's my branding? Who are you? What separates you? The moment you can begin to answer those questions and you can build separation, you can build unique branding, you have true brand ID, you understand marketing and structure, you understand leadership and moreover servant leadership. And then you have the confidence to understand that sales is creating a value for something in something for somebody that they have a problem that you can solve. And it might be a very small niche category, but at the end of the day, if you're solving a problem for somebody, see, I solve problems for people that have 15 foot ceilings, 30 foot walls and giant multi-million dollar homes, and they need somebody to put art on it. Well, if there's not a lot of people to do that, and I'm one of the only ones and I work with interior designers, I'm going to fill that niche. So it doesn't matter what you're in. It doesn't matter if you're on the mountain, you're looking for an animal and you step away from the mountain five miles with big eyes and tear it apart until you find animals, then you hone in on it. And then you get close and then you make sure you're right. And then you refine your stock and your approach by how quiet you are or what you're going to use from the standpoint of calls or technique to get your shot same thing in business uh, i look at it from the standpoint of just making sure that i have the right product to fill a niche and a category and then moreover and more importantly is just backing it up with the ability to have confidence in your sale and in the solution that you've created for the people that you're looking to make sure that you fulfill that gap in i think that's all that uh we do i mean i think you do that in fitness in preparation for the hunt game. Uh, we, we do that same thing for the mountain and I do the same thing in business. Mm, I like that. Um, the, the Laguna location, man, like that zip code that it ain't cheap to get a lease or to buy a building. Um, when take me through the process of getting your gallery 
doped in just like you would a brand new bow where you know when you were you know when you finally get a bow that's new to you get one every year probably from Hoyt it, it takes a while until you're like yep I got exactly how I want it. I'm super confident. Let's go. What about your gallery? Like, tell me, take me through Laguna, that whole process. Um, because I, I find that fascinating, man. You, you, you've been doing a little research on me. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, the best way to answer that question is I'm a risk taker. I'm a gambler. I am not afraid to go all in on something. Um, and, and I'm that way on the mountain. Mm -hmm. I absolutely go all in on something and with a high level of confidence. So, um, yeah, it's Laguna beach isn't, you know, um, inexpensive. It's, it's known as the, the little French Riviera of the U S it's kind of like this quaint beach community, but it's very, very upscale. And it just lends itself really well to my type of art. Uh, if you, you know, do anything right and you don't prepare yourself, like let's say you're in the whitetail woods and you're preparing to come hunt elk out West and you don't practice to a hundred yards and you have a 70 yard shot happen perfectly broadside, you know, uh, if you don't practice for that, you're, you're coming and you're coming unprepared. And now th that might be beyond what some people would call, you know, their own ethical pursuit or desire. But at the end of the day, uh, the parallel that I'm trying to draw is that you really have to come into it, understanding again, your competition, understanding what it is that you're looking to accomplish and where you're best suited to do that. So if I'm best suited to sell a high-end product, I have to be in an area where people are used to spending that type of money. I could not put uh, a gallery like this into a strip mall or into somewhere that's like a town center and you know, charge 10 grand for a six foot piece of art. Like I'd get laughed off the block and probably wouldn't even sell one a year if I was lucky. <clears throat> uh, I'll the rent might be cheaper and uh, might be easier from the overheads perspective, but uh, that's just simply not how you run a business. You can't run a business by um, coming into it unprepared and going into a place where your category is not going to be very receptive of the product that you offer. So Laguna was just the natural choice. Uh, it's a place that, you know, we get over on a good year, we get over 7 million visitors. Um, and uh, we need that foot traffic to make sure that, you know, the business can sustain on a retail level. Yeah, man. And you noticed I'm totally skirting mule deer hunting questions because I did do research and I understand you've been on so many gosh darn podcasts because of your, basically your pedigree, your uh, pedigree when it comes to mule deer hunting. So I'm going to ask you basic hunting questions and friends. This is the Elk Shape podcast, but if you do your due diligence, Marlon's um, an aficionado when it comes to killing mule deer. I don't even know how many mule, you don't even know how many mule deer you've killed with a bow. It's that many, but it's the consistency that attracts me to you. Um, it's, it's how serious I can tell your vibe is when it comes to this stuff. This isn't this isn't uh, child's play. This is this is serious. And um, I'm going to start with working on your own equipment. Um, when did you finally learn how to tune your own bows and not like shooting an arrow through paper? I'm talking like build your own bow, start to finish, know how to shoot fixed broadheads that come out of there perfectly straight. 
So I think that, um, you know, I didn't start hunting till I was probably 28, I want to say. And, and that's, it's going to be give or take a year. It might be 27. It was 27 or 28. Um, and to fully dox myself, I just turned 44 in September. So I'm turn, turning into an old man now. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think that that's the, that's the common denominator between both of us, Dan. Like, we want to go into things prepared. And, and more than prepared, we, the confidence that comes from truly understanding your craft and your body inside and out to know you can go up there. And if you're put in the situation that you're ready to answer the call, that that's what we prepare for my friend. Like you and I have the same uh, amount of love and respect and admiration for what we both do. This is the elk shape podcast. And when you're like, Hey man, why don't we jump on? I'm like flattered. I'm like, Holy crap. Like this Dan Stanton, like, he wants me to jump on the Alcott podcast, even though I haven't even checked. I've called for a couple of friends and hauled a couple off the mountain and it's cool. I love it, dude. Like it's absolutely amazing. And I know that, you know, your followers, you know, they really come to you for that because you are like the resource for it. And for whatever reason, um, mule deer called to me like that. And, and I, you know, I can't really, put my finger on it necessarily other than to say I love the mono mono just old man on the mountain kind of like matching wits with this you know one buck that really was a challenge and and for me to answer that call Dan I, I I had to know that from the very very beginning from my fishing background your terminal tackle was the start of it all like if you did not know your tournament tackle you could lose a quarter million dollar marlin because somebody decided to tie a bad knot. So I made it a rule. I, I became a captain at a hundred ton us coast guard captain's license by the time I was 18. And I was doing professional fishing tournaments on 60 and 80 foot boats, uh, all around the world for probably 15 years. And, you know, you'd see mistakes happen. So I, I made a few rules. And one of the rules was that one person was responsible for all the knots and all the terminal tackle and measuring of leaders. And you know what, from start to finish on the boat. So that way you couldn't sit there and say, oh, well, who did that? You know, there was no pointing fingers. There was one finger to point at. And I always made it me. That way, if the fish was lost because there was, uh, you know, a burnt knot tied where the tie line was tied with too much tension and it burned the mono and, and you know, you put too much pressure on it. Um, there is a way to tie, for example, 130 pound test mono to where it'll break at 80 pounds. Uh, or you could tie it to where 130 pound test mono will break at 160 pounds. Mm -hmm. And tying that terminal tackle made the difference. A lot of times when you're on the leader or you have, you're winding that double onto the reel and you have the last couple wraps before you're reaching out to grab the leader, <clears throat> where everything can go wrong or nothing can go wrong. And I learned that so early on in my fishing career that I knew it parlayed over into my hunting side of things. And hunting was this new challenge. It was just this new kind of shiny, shiny, you know, thing, this object that was like kind of untouchable that people said was, you know, this impossible feat, you know, bow hunting, short range weapon with, testing wits with these really smart animals just sounded very intriguing to me. And I said to myself from the very start, so to answer your question, Dan, I dove into it 
starting with my terminal tackle. Uh, I wanted to understand my terminal tackle. And I told the bow shop owner when I bought my first bow, I'm like, I'm intending to understand exactly how to use this equipment. So I'm not here just to buy a bow and let you set it up. Like, I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to get to know the shop, the people that work here, the people that come here. And I'm going to become not only a patron, but I'm, you know, want to become part of the family, the fabric of that shop. And mm. to the very, very day, I have full access to that shop. And I'm very, very close with the entire family. So when I go in there, I, you know, have access to the saws, the presses, all the equipment. Um, so I can, you know, do anything from uh, walk back tuning in a private lane that, you know, nobody gets to shoot in to cutting my own arrows and tuning things, weighing things, pressing my bow um, and, and, you know, taking a look at things such as timing, tiller, you name it, just across the board. That is very important to me because you have to have a sound foundation. Even if you're going to marry somebody and you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you have to have a sound foundation. Even if you want to raise your kids, right? You raise these beautiful kids. We both have beautiful children. We have to have like a solid foundation as parents to make sure that they, you know, have rocks that they can rely on in their life and somebody they can look up to. <clears throat> I think of it as the pinnacle of anything that we do. If we really want to reach the top of the mountain, we got to start with a solid core. And if we don't have that core, we're only kidding ourselves. We're going to only make it so far before we find out that there are cracks in our game. And I figure it is important to emphasize that we understand the elementary and basic foundational components to building our bows, making sure that they're on and tuned properly. So that way we can truly feel the nuances in that bow, whether it's shooting right or not. You can feel it in the release, whether the bow is timed right or not. You can see it in the arrow flight downrange. Elk Shape Camps 2023. What goes on at Elk Shape Camp? A lot of stuff, but basically... I can distill it down to this. We're going to sniff out your weaknesses, write you up a blueprint to tackle them head on and make sure that you're consistently getting into elk. You're consistently training and eating clean year round. You're disciplined and dialed at home, at your job or employment, and that you're making disciplined decisions that are going to lead to more success in life and in the mountains. Phoenix, Arizona, January 20th through the 22nd at Wilderness Athlete HQ, March 3rd through the 5th in Stonewall, Texas, right next to Numa HQ, Julian Ranch, California, March 31st through April 2nd. This is in SoCal, right outside of San Diego. Plus, we are going to do our inaugural women's only elk shape camp on March 30th. Gals, you are invited. It's a women's only event on the 30th, and then you'll jump right into the rest of the camp. We also have couple discounts. Make sure to shoot us an email if you want to know about that. Vortex Edge in Wisconsin, April 14th through the 16th. We came here last year. It's such an amazing facility. It's so easy to put on a camp there. We can't wait to meet more Wisconsin or Midwest folks. And last but not least is a two-day intensive camp for Elite Onyx members only in Green Acres, Washington, June 17th through the 18th. Early bird prices go until October 31st. Regular prices kick in November 1st and late registration starts January 1st, 2023. We hope to meet you at an elk shape camp near you-ish. And we have military discounts, regardless if you're currently serving or have served in the past. Email us to inquire within.
And, you know, from broadheads to fletch, I mean, people do get themselves caught up in this very one thing. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying, what can I do to improve myself? They go out and shop for all this equipment. Say, okay, well, this is going to make me more effective. This is going to give me an advantage. And while wearing merino and layers and good boots and and solid equipment, the best bow and the <clears throat> tightest spine tolerance arrows and broadheads that are, you know, uh, sub one grain variants per broadhead, and you know, you get into the technical aspects. While that is a game of inches, uh, I bet you I could throw you in a pair of blue jeans and a red flannel and give you a bow, and you're going to go out and you're going to kill an elk. Because at the end of the day, uh, a lot of the stuff is a head fake. The reality is, are you a good Indian? How good are you at putting it together when it's on the line? So I start with my terminal tackle as the foundation and the crux of the hunt. Because ultimately, I believe that you have to have the best foundation if you want long-term consistency in anything you do. And I start there because I don't want to have anybody else to blame for a D-loop coming out, uh, a peep sight sliding and making me inaccurate downrange, um, you know, or for my bow being not in tune or not in time. For example, some people may not even understand that with the best string making material on the planet, you'll have like a tiny bit of settling. And as that settling occurs, no matter what, after a couple thousand shots through that new bow, you're going to have to adjust your rest just a little bit if you're shooting a compound. Now, you could say, well, you should adjust your peep. That's fine. But at the end of the day, either one, whichever one you decide to adjust, I always adjust my rest because I want the variance between my D-loop and my peep to stay the same. I don't want to adjust my bus cable, even though I might be able to add half twist into it to compensate for it. I'm just going to move my rest such a, or my, my sight, just a slight, slight amount to to take up for that variance i'm going to be fine but you're not going to know that unless you really really care about your gear and you shoot your bow so much enough to where you can feel that happening as you're shooting it in <clears throat> and it's going to happen to every single bow but people that don't tune their own equipment and really get into tuning their own equipment are going to find that hey how come i'm shooting you know low four months later they won't know that they'll just kind of pass by it and not understand those differences and they'll go on a hunt and actually end up missing an animal that you know they took time off of work um, time away from family that they'll never be able to get back and then on top of it the compound add insult to injury they come home with a tag in their pocket and then that will perpetuate itself that will happen every single year until a they get lucky um and, and, you know, something changes. Like, for example, if a buck is feeding or drinking and it has its head down, um, it has the ability to duck the string about two to three X more than if a buck's head is erect and upright, staring straight at you. If you have a buck that's feeding with his face down, he can drop to load his legs about three times faster. He can drop his body almost a full body length or body width in that sub distance of error released impact. Now, if a buck, that same buck is staring at you fully alert, straight up, 
he cannot drop his body the same amount as if his head is down feeding. Like I've seen it dozens and dozens and dozens of times to like know for a fact. So like sometimes you can get lucky with it. Sometimes you can't, but knowing your equipment, understanding the animal itself is going to give you the opportunity to have that shot come through for you. And it means the difference between a filled tag or a tag left in your pocket. Long answers here. Sorry about that, but I think it's all connected. It is all connected. So numbers are important to me in everything I do, measuring, managing, tracking. And so I just want you to speak to either percentages or just whatever you're comfortable with. But I want to talk about mule deer because I am definitely excited about going mule deer hunting in November. Uh, I have a couple tags. One's a rifle. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've killed mule deer, folks. People don't even know this. But yes, sir. Um, I love mule deer hunting. And I'm actually... You'll like this, but some people won't. But I'd rather hunt mule deer than whitetail in November. I'd rather be on the my on the ground than in a stand. And I've killed a lot of whitetail, um, a pretty handful of mule deer. And so I want to pick your brain. Majority of the deer that you've killed, Marlon, fixed or mechanical broadhead? I, th- I think that's a personal preference question because I, I do believe that there are broadheads out there that ultimately are consistent enough um at deploying at the right time to where you don't necessarily have to deliberate between the two as much as you may once have i i'm a fixed blade guy and i am also the type of person that doesn't try a bunch of other products looking for something that is going to make me any better when i know that what i have gets the job done very effectively and efficiently um so i don't necessarily i don't change anything at all once i find something that works i just stick with it so fixed is the answer um and and the reason why i deviated from um expandables in the past was if you have a severe quartering shot some of those expandables have the way that the blade opens requires that it hinge back and as that broadhead hits the skin or bone on impact there's a a, a lever and that lever will move the actual point whichever side hits first to the left or right as it hinges outward to go in does that make sense absolutely yeah i know you had your reasons i just want i didn't know what you were using um it makes a lot of sense especially with all the unique angles and the game you play it's you it's really almost unpredictable it is and 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 i'm the type of advocate of you know you have to get an arrow into that animal i i am not afraid of different angles i know anatomy uh and Mm. anatomy is more important than the angle of the shot and um i i just have never been satisfied with the fact that as that leading blade whichever leading blade on the broad head deploys itself moves the tip of the arrow what happens is that if you have a severe quartering angle imagine that one side of the head hits first it has the ability to catch and turn the trajectory of the arrow 90 to 120 degrees almost in the opposite direction sometimes and you'll get poor penetration results. And, and these are things that I've simply seen from friends. Um, I've never tested expandables before. I've just seen, I've seen it happen on two elk and probably 
half a dozen deer over the last 15 years with friends of mine. It's just completely talked me out of it. But I know that if you're standing perfectly broadside on every single shot and, you know, you're committed and dedicated to that and that's the way that you hunt, then, you know, expandables will be just fine for you. Me, I don't wait for that shot. If I have an opportunity, I'm going to learn anatomy much better and I'm going to learn how to create my angle to get that shot. And for me, uh, that's why fixed blades work much better for my purpose and application. Yeah. When I think about you on the mountain taking your shot, I wonder, this is just, I'm weird, but I'm like, I'm wondering, I wonder if majority of his shots are at a certain yardage. Like if you had to average it out, this is like about the average shot distance. And this is the, the buck. I waited for the buck to stand up. Uh, and then lastly, I dialed to a specific distance or I ran a three pin, five pin slider or I'm a single pin guy. I'm just trying to pick your brain because I'm leaning on you, man. I love learning from other people that are successful. Me too. One day uh, we'll have to sidebar and kind of just talk, right? Because I'd love to Absolutely. talk. Um, for the purpose uh, of the podcast and to kind of give you know people the most information that, that we can here, um, I know there's a lot of people that are proponents of slider sites. And if you want to shoot beyond, you know, say 90 to hundred yards, you have to use one. Um, I personally am. I'm just not that guy. I, I'm never going to be that guy. I don't care to be that guy. I think that um, a bow is going to be meant to be a short range weapon for me. And I'm going to hone my abilities to never have to shoot a uh, hundred yards. And, and, but, you know, I'm not going to take it to a place where somebody else can't it's this is not an ethics conversation this is a personal value system within myself i'm gonna i'm gonna take the hunt to the animal that i pursue and i'm gonna match wits with that animal if i wanted to hunt with a rifle or a muzzleloader i would and i choose not to because to me it's grocery shopping i'm not interested in it and i want to get better at my craft and i don't take it any anything away from somebody who wants to choose a long-range weapon like go for it enjoy the field and you know provide for your family and have a great time so for the purposes of what we're talking about i use a seven pin site i don't have anything less than a 30 yard pin for start i end at 90 and i like having fixed pins i don't get confused by it because i don't change my sights i don't have a three pin one year i don't have a one pin one year I don't have a five pin slide, right? I don't change anything. And that's where consistency breeds success and results that it's burned into my eye, almost that, that muscle memory. And, and it's burned into my eye that I understand that uh, my first green is going to be 30 and that my second uh, yellow, right? Like all the different pins all the way to the end, I'm going to burn it in my mind what they are. That way I don't have to sit there and, make a mistake and i'll even run through it myself when i range something i'll go okay that's this pin and 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 i think about it i'm very cognizant of it every step of the way i use a spot hog seven deadly pin bulletproof pins with 0.010 fiber um i really like that dot i'm a silly person that still uh settles the pin in the middle of the peep i don't settle my housing because i don't want to focus on all my pins in my gang i want to focus on one pin and i use the tiniest peep you could ever imagine my peep is sub eight uh, it's like sub 16th inch actually it's really really small so at last shooting light i still have a good view but you know 
if you're trying to push it past shooting light, like it doesn't work for me. And I don't, I just don't shoot. Uh, most of my kills, I would say to the 85th percentile occur at the hours of 1.30 to 4 in the afternoon. Um, I'm running an average of over 60 animals that I can kind of think of offhand, uh, where my average shot distance is 53 yards. Um, and I'm running about in the 90th percentile on my first stock for a shot. And um, I'm just very like meticulous on making sure that like I do the best I can. Now we, there's the one thing that we can't control is wind, right? We just can't control wind. The only thing we can do is just wait till the thermals steady up. But in monsoon conditions in the high country, when we're in the timber or whatever, like there's just no way that that's going to always stay consistent. And that's the one thing that's kind of like, um, you know, kind of if something's going to wreak havoc, it's the wind. So you had asked a question earlier about, do you wait for them to stand? I never wait for them to stand. Uh, I will, even if I get into like 22 yards, for example, but I don't have the right shot, I'm completely backing out of bow range coming in again to create an angle. And I don't care how long it takes me to find the right angle. I'm going to try and minimize how many times I go out and back in by just picking the right route first. But sometimes I'll have to reroute, you know, once or twice to create the angle. And once I have the angle and release the arrow, I think that most oftentimes if you're waiting for an animal to stand, you're going to learn a lot of painful lessons about wind and <laughs> animals, you know, uh, vacate the premises and when when we and you're going to know this very well because you hunt mature animals too when you hunt mature animals they don't give you that opportunity you have one chance to make it right and if they wind you at 30 yards you're pretty much effectively screwed at trying i mean can you get in again yes if you're patient and you work hard you can probably rebed them in the timber or know if you've learned enough about the habit of the animal know where their secondary bed is when they've been bumped from their primary bedding area. Animals absolutely have primary and secondary bedding areas. And if they're bumped, they will absolutely go to a secondary place like clockwork. It's not even a guess. They're going to go to their secondary area. So if you know where that is, like they're as good as dead. Um, so it's one of those things that just depends on how much time you have to commit to the hunt to understand those dynamics sometimes you know we go into unit fresh and we're just looking for sign and trying to put things together and the first animal we see we might not have any experience with but he might be the one and you know it's up to us to try and be as efficient as possible to get it done on that first stock and execute properly um and then other hunts you know might be close to home something we can do every year and we learn where the animals habitually tend to place themselves and throughout that course of understanding in years i call it hallowed ground right we are able to have that tribal knowledge and build that over time to give us that confidence in knowing where they're going to go if they need to but yeah that, that's those are some of the the metrics um you know if you were able to extrapolate that dan absolutely um i know you said we a little uh, i'm kind of a solo guy for a lot of my elk hunting escapades but i certainly love not being solo when an animal's on the ground especially elk um but i've i've found some really good hunting partners throughout the years and 
curious, are you a Lone Star? Do you have a squad or a partner? And if you do, how, what are the best practices? Like what are the clues that are left behind that make sense that check boxes for you to make sure someone's is committed and they're only going to push you, not pull you away from what you're trying to do. You know, that's, that is the, that I think that is the crux of the most challenging question for any of us to answer. Um, some of us just have built in brothers that are just, you know, lifelong friends you grew up hunting and you just hunt together and it, it's, it's an understanding, but me, I, I came into the game so late that I didn't, I never had any of that. So as a result, um, yeah, I have people that I've hunted with, um, you know, a few people throughout the years. Um, but it, it, the, I think the biggest challenge for me is just that I hunt multiple States every year. Um, and albeit the time is not unlimited. There is, you know, time caps cause I have business and things that I have to get to and family and whatnot. But I go, I'll go on, you know, four to six hunts a year at least. Um, and sometimes I'll go back, right. Uh, if I don't get it done the first week, I'll go back and work for a week and then come back and hunt it for another eight or 10 days or whatever the case may be. The biggest challenge that I find is even if I want to hunt with somebody and even if somebody wants to hunt with me and we want to do it consistently, uh, timing never really adds up the same. Like for me, my life revolves around hunting. I work and build business and do things that allow me to have freedom so I can hunt. A lot of people are building their life around wanting to retire with a certain amount in their bank or what, you know, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what people necessarily do, but um, the challenge that I've found is that I have people I want to hunt with and people that want to hunt with me, but they may not have the money to do that or they cannot take the time off to do that. Or they uh, I'm a specialist. I'm a mule deer specialist. A lot of my friends are, you know, Hey, I'm going to go on a goat hunt. I'm going to go chase bears. I'm going to go hunt a whitetail. I'm going to go hunt elk. I drew this tag and I can tell you pretty much what a mule deer is thinking before he even knows what he's thinking. And to a high level of confidence, really know the behavior and the thought process and the ideology behind the deer. Now, am I going to be like some savant, <clears throat> rain man about it no um they're animals and they're very nomadic and they can do whatever they want but i'm very attuned to understanding these habitual behaviors across the species and subspecies and as a result um i focus only on them whereas a lot of my friends are indiscriminate they just simply want to go out and hunt i don't want to go out and just hunt if you say hey do you want to come hunt pigs or goats or whatever um, no i just don't and I'm never going to give up a mule deer hunt that I love to go hunt anything else. Now, one day I have like 17 points or something like that in a lot of Western states for elk, for example. And one of these days, the tag's going to pop. I don't know if it's going to be when I'm 60 or next year, who knows? But when that pops, I mean, after almost a 20 year wait, I'm going to go ahead and give it the time to hunt that tag. And when it does, people are going to be like, whoa, you know, he's <laughs> hunting an elk. But um, I think of it in terms of the fact that I would love to hunt with people 
it's just that our schedules very rarely line up. So it ends up me being the type of person that hunts solo about 90% of the time, if not more, Dan. Mm. I, I definitely get it, man. And, you know, where you go solo in these mountains, you have a lot of time by yourself to think, um, what's going on? Like what kind of, what kind of gray light hunter comes out of the hunt versus going into it with that much time on your hands in the mountains? I mean, I know you're steadfast and you're hyper-focused on the job and the task at hand and who knows how many hours you've spent behind glass, but let's be real, man. Like when that sun sets and you're by yourself, like what kind of therapeutic mojo are you getting out of these hunts? People don't talk about that enough and I'm into it. You know, um, you know, that show, uh, alone, mm -hmm. that series, I, I watch all of those and anybody who's listening to this, I would watch those too. I think it's amazing. It's truly amazing to understand the fabric of who we are, what makes us and what builds us. And a lot of what I can tell you has built uh, my passion and love for landscape photography is that this is going to get a little bit deep, right? And I don't expect everybody to sit there and embrace what I'm saying here, but we all go back to the earth. This is a process. We're a part of this huge cycle. Uh, and it's so much greater than us. Like every single drip of water on this earth right now has been here since the existence or the beginning of time on this earth the water that you're going to drink in a workout or that you do something with, whatever it is, wash your hands, take a shower has been through many other beings has grown trees, has grown has, and the, the earth continues to cleanse it. It continues to evaporate, go up into the sky, cleanse, come falling back down and gives us this joy of life. It makes any arena smell different when it rains. You just, you smell that sense of freshness, renewal, spring, life. It just, it's, <clears throat> it's innate. It's programmed in us. So there's not a drop of water on this earth that something else hasn't utilized in perpetuating its own energy force as it does for us. So when I take a landscape photograph and I sit in front of this vast scene, I'm in my physical manifestation of self in my physical form right now um, to go about my business and do what I want to be free of being like, let's say, for example, a tree or a rock or static in any way. But when I die, I'm 44. If I'm lucky, I have half a life left. But I'm going to think cup half full, not cup half empty. I'm going to think in terms of how, you know, how much life I have left to live, but at the same time realizing that in as short amount of time as I've been alive, the next amount of time past that, then I'll be gone. And I won't be able to just run around the world and see all these things. I will be static. My energy force might be, uh, you know, off an ethos somewhere that's a different dimension that we may not understand as human beings here, but that my flesh, my bones, dust to dust, ashes, ashes, dust to dust, back to the earth, everything that grows out of the ground from the dirt will become everything that is left of who I am. And so a lot of time when I'm in the mountains, it's very reflective. It's very meditative. It's very much so a coming to reality and a sensation that I'm looking at myself 
in everything I do. When I look at a mountain, I look at a tree, I look at a lake, like you and I, we're different human beings, we're different people, we're different men, but we are tied by the bond of brotherhood that goes much beyond the state of just our blood or our flesh, but that our being is that intermixed. Once we're ashes, nobody's going to sit there and say, hey, that's Dan, and that was Marlon. It's just going to be dirt. And that innate quality of the fact of what allows us to have the realization and the consciousness and freedom of choice that God's given us on this earth to be able to do what we do right now. I see the mountains and the arena and the playing stage and my part in the cycle of life as very much so being connected in that way. And I see myself in the mountains. So what I do in the times when, uh, you know, when it, it's after the day has passed, it's really a lot like this. It's like God meant for the lights to go off. It's time to sleep. So I don't have campfires, man. Like I eat my meal, you know, I've had a long day and I'm going to get rest. And you and I both know that 4.30 in the morning comes a lot faster than we think after a hard day on the mountain. And more often than not, like I don't have the energy to stay up much past when the sun comes down, goes down. You know, I, I might stay up for an hour. I might get on my inReach and, and message a few loved ones. I might scroll through a few photos uh, from the day, uh, analyzing country or thinking about different places I want to hit um, or thinking about a buck I found and, you know, how I want to work in on them. That might occupy my thoughts until I drift off, off to sleep. Uh, but I'm kind of, it's interesting for me. I'm not really the person that misses much. I don't miss home. I don't um, miss, I don't, I'm not attached to things like that from that standpoint. I think in terms of being very present uh, and realizing that I'm a part of this big cycle and there's a lot more at work than just me. So I try and I don't even try. It's just, that's what I'm occupied with. Beautifully said guys, this is Marlon Holden at Graylight Hunter. Give him a follow if you're not already. Um, dude, thanks so much for taking time and connecting. And I want to do this again. Like that's, that's my immediate gut reaction is, dang, I want to hang out in real life with Marlon. I want to do this again. So I'm let's all do about it again, it, brother. Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how much it means. And, you know, on a personal note, um, yeah, we got to make it a point to, to get together at some point. Yeah, my crew is uh, always scheming on how we can tell stories about other people besides ourselves on our YouTube content. You're on our list, so I'll reach out down the road for that. But if I'm going to go to California, it's going to be to to hang out with you and uh, to maybe document some of the stuff we've talked about and just get to know you better. So that could be really interesting. Oh, there's a lot of good food down here. And uh, my son's a blast. So <laughs> bring the fam and hang out. Cool. Uh, guys, we believe separations in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one. Here at Oakshape, we're very picky on who we decide to partner with. We take our brand very serious. And if we have a partner, we want to brag about them because we believe in them. Numa Outdoors, that's the clothing we wear. Discount code Elkshape20 will take 20% off your first order. Vortex Optics, Vortex Nation, proud partner since 2010. On X Hunt, become an elite member. This is the most reliable app for hunting on the market. Discount code Elkshape takes 20% off your elite membership. 
Buck Knives out of Post Falls, Idaho. They've been in business since 1902. Matthews Archery, a brand that not only has the same shared values, but continues to push technology and making the best bows on planet Earth. MagView, this is the digiscoping solution that simplifies the entire process. Discount code ElkShape takes 10% off. Wilderness Athlete, this brand makes supplements, does not specialize in marketing. They specialize in making you better and recover and being healthier. Discount code ElkShape22 will take 30% off your first purchase. Spy Point Trail Cameras, Trail Camology. Trail cams are an extremely useful tool to help you scout figure out game densities and understand animal behavior and they make very reliable trail cameras that you can count on kafaru international the hoodlum is my all-time favorite backpack for elk hunting i don't even know how many elk i've packed out with that pack but i always can count on it the frame is in a league of its own and aaron snyder is running a phenomenal company that we believe in Crispy Boots, Crispy USA, Crispy Hunting. These boots are the best bang for your buck. Minimal break-in period. Lots of flex ratings to suit your style and terrain that you hunt in. Check out a Crispy dealer near you. Baku e-bikes out of Ogden, Utah. E-bikes made for hunters, by hunters. Use them where legal. It's efficient, quiet, and exhaust-free way to get in and get out of your tree stand or your hunting location. Black Rifle Coffee Company, coffee is life. And this is a veteran-owned Pro 2A company. Discount code ElkShape takes 15% off. BlackOvis.com is where I do all my shopping, and I use my own discount code, which is ElkShape. It takes 10% off, fast and free shipping, a vast variety, and great customer service. Sheep Feet Orthotics for the Hunter. Put these in your boot and elevate your game. Leak less energy, prevent injury, and hunt more efficiently. Discount code ElkShape takes 10% off. TheElkCollective.com. Digital elk hunting education, video driven. Enter the discount code ElkShape podcast, all one word, to save a few bucks and get to learning. Fatty meat sticks from Smokewood. These are my go-to snacks when hunting protein and fat great energy sources super convenient delicious you can find them at any convenience store near you marsupial out of arizona they make the best bino packs period handcrafted here in the usa and we stand behind them 